Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 271st episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Matthew Jenikov and Josh Tanner. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Emma. Today we've got D.W. Thomas on the show. She's got a new film coming out called Too Late. It's a fun genre-mashing horror comedy set in the world of stand-up comedy, which is great. It's uh, filled with different people who you'll recognize or up-and-comers. I thought it was really fun and a thing that I personally am very interested in. Having come from the world of stand-up, though I'm not a stand-up myself, and also indie film, I was like, oh, this is great. It's a combination of two of my passions. So we dig in with DW about what it what it takes to make your first feature, and specifically working with stand-up comics, which I thought was really especially interesting. I feel like we're whenever I see a, a movie with stand-up in it, you know, there's always that question of like, well, who's writing what? And like, that feels like that's so clearly so-and-so's voice how does that work and so we dig in on that i thought that was really maybe my favorite part yeah that is fascinating i've done some stuff with comedians and it is hard to like write jokes for them (laughs) you know comedians playing like stand-up comics but yeah right right. it's hard to write a joke for someone who has spent probably (laughs) a decade or more like honing their persona and voice and figuring out exactly what type of joke works for them yeah, yeah. One of my favorite shows I talked about recently uh, right now is Hacks on HBO, which is about stand-up comedy. And I love that DW here took that world and mashed it with horror prosthetic like craziness. And also Fred Armisen is in the movie, which is uh, always a delight. So a lot of great stuff from DW. But before we talk to her, I'd love to know, Matt, what have you been working on lately? Yeah, man. We're in the throes of delivering our movie, which has been kind of a delight. I've certainly learned a handful of things, but the thing that I'm the most grateful for is that my other producer, B. Chaheen, is superhuman when it comes to organization and fastidiousness in terms of getting everything ready. So I feel like you oftentimes hear horror stories from producers who are trying to track down releases and all of that stuff, and you realize when you've got the laundry list of deliverables from a company that you're you just realize that you've made a few mistakes and uh certainly there were things that we are learning or changing or augmenting but because things are so organized it's been more fun than painful which is rare for me yeah do you know that last week kara and i both received an email from b about uh, signing a release form? <laughs> that's true yeah yeah i was on that uh were you on that, oh, you on that thread? yeah so. of course of course yeah um yeah. yeah, no, that stuff. So it's funny because I talked to you about this already, but I've gotten this opportunity to direct this commercial. It seemed kind of like a small, it's kind of a reshoot of a commercial. 
in this weird way. But what was odd about this opportunity is I was kind of given it the whole thing. Like, hey, do you want to direct this thing? Also, like, figure out how to make it. And it's like a legit commercial for a legit company with like, you know, you need to have like all the proper paperwork and permits and releases and all that stuff. And uh, I'm not a producer, so I don't know how to do Like, I know about all that stuff, but I don't have like a checklist and I don't want to spend weeks investing in learning how to do all the producing stuff exactly to the T for a commercial for this job. So I've been I've been actually hunting for producers and believe it or not, it's uh, very hard to find a good commercial producer right now. We literally reached out to 20 different commercial producers over the past two days. And the best we've gotten is one is available to start a week and a half from now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, things are crazy right now. It's interesting because I am not a career producer, but I think this experience has really helped me understand certain technicalities and ins and outs that that like you I was kind of like I vaguely aware of or you hear of a PR or or timesheets or whatever and you kind of you know what's PR some, uh, a production report oh okay yeah so so basically there's a handful of documents that are all designed to help you cross reference things so that your sag time cards match your production report match your x y and z basically um, and I'm still kind of getting the hang of all of that. But, you know, it, it brought to light that it's really wonderful to have a partner with a different set of skills than than you do so that you can kind of teach each other and help each other grow. You know what I mean? There are things that are in B's wheelhouse that are are very clear. And 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 certainly she's got great creative chops and all, all of the other things that you need from a, a, a producer. But there are things like post i can help out with a little bit more for instance and so finding partners where you kind of complement each other's skills in certain ways and also can fill in holes in others i think has been been really great so yeah that that's that's where i'm at so delivery you know it's e and o insurance it's it's all of that stuff but one thing actually i i want to impress upon people that i'm dealing with right now i think that i wish that we had done is people always talk about having great key art as being really important mm, yes and just I, photograph your keys in case you lose them you just yeah exactly the key shop and then, yeah, yeah, make yeah. Them for you exactly yeah i have a portrait of my keys up above my computer just to keep an eye on them no no so so you know obviously when it comes time to sell your movie having a great poster is kind of the thing that is that a filmmaker has the most control over in terms of marketing materials that is the most powerful tool you have to make someone decide to watch your film right and so you can hire a great designer and you can have really cool ideas and you can, you know, pull great references and stuff. And, and also now we have like an incredible array of different stock photos that you can use and augment and cobble together. Photoshop so incredible, all that stuff. But if you don't have great stills of your talent, it, all of those other tools are kind of hindered by whatever that limitation is. And so... If you have if you are shooting a film, go onto bnh.com or whatever, get yourself some gray seamless and like put it up in the front yard of your location, wherever. Find a, a corner, light it evenly, and get every single one of your cast members in even neutral lighting in a variety of poses. Make that a priority. That is my gift to everyone. Do that, and you will have much better key art. 
in the future. And it is easy to do. And everyone tells you to do this and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I have such a great relationship with my cast. It's no big deal. Then a pandemic comes and all of a sudden it becomes a heck of a lot harder to get ADR or key art shot, basically. Yeah. What I would recommend to just to build on that is even if you have a friend that's a photographer or something, if you're kind of low budget or obviously hire a photographer, um, getting them to just keep like shoot as much stuff, you know, high res, 21 megapixel, whatever DSLR stuff while you're shooting, even if you can only have them come like two or three days of your shoot. And um, we have that. We have that. And it is very helpful. But I think that it feels more BTS. You know what I mean? You see like a camera in the foreground and stuff like that. Yeah. So you have them. I I think you need to. That stuff is great. The BTS stuff is awesome. And if they can roll some videos, it's really great too. But if they can just, you know, match your camera setup and just get a still photo of it a couple of times, you know, for the scenes. And then, and then also just say like, Hey, you know, we're switching lighting setups. Can everyone, the you know, the lights nice outside, like run and yes, especially with the seamless or something. Let's just get elements of our actors and wardrobe and stuff and hair and makeup. It's, it's super smart. Um, but yeah. as a yeah. director, it's hard to find time to do that. Actually that I just did that Disney campaign and we did, I also was like the stills photographer on it and we did, just have like a the grip set up like a white bounce and just took a bunch of photos of people because we knew we wanted to use elements of their heads for this animation but um but you know it was just so so rushed and so hurried we were so behind on everything else and for us to take 15 minutes down you know and do that was hard that if we had a photographer doing it kind of while we were setting up it would have been really handy yeah i mean i would say treat that person like a department head right if you can get one person then and and that's their priority then you can work together to be like okay today's the day where these all of the characters that i'm gonna want on my poster are all in the exact right wardrobe that they'll want all of that stuff it'll be great do you know what i mean like you can cut you can work with them and then you can offload that now it's on their plate and they can be you know you give them permission to be a little annoying to be like hey can we call grace real quick everyone else is going to lunch but keep the lights on and let's shoot you know for five or 10 minutes with the actors or, or whatever it is. Right. Um, yeah, that's my recommendation. Cool. Well, I have today, you might hear, I've been hearing some gurgles and smurgles. It's because, uh, well, so we have as a guest on the podcast today, my new son, Wolf Kaplan. He's uh, almost six weeks old. How like weeks. the wolf. Yeah. Um, he's very noisy, especially at uh, 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. But, uh, he, you know, he's born on April 30th and I kind of took, you know, most of May to help uh, keep him alive. And I, for June, I had these two kind of big jobs lined up um, that I was very excited about. And then one of them fell through and the other one is postponed. I mean, we're supposed to find out more today, but potentially indefinitely. And I thought it it's interesting because I, I've got this other opportunity I just mentioned about, you know, maybe reshooting some stuff and have you ever been in that situation where you're just contacting like a million people to work on your project and they're all busy like I you know I'm gonna feature in Atlanta I'm doing this I have this and you're like and everyone's like oh it's so busy it's so busy it's so busy in town but you're like like, I have uh nothing (laughs) nothing right now it's it's a weird feeling because uh yeah does that how how do you how do you deal with that and how do you like yeah 
When do you think I, about that? I think uh, certainly I've been there. I think that also it's easy to forget that as directors, oftentimes we get picked in, up into the project a couple weeks after everyone else. You know, producers are already in prep by the time, you know, they're, they're those are the people that are helping put together the lists that we're on, right? And so I think that's worth kind of keeping in mind, like, because I'm in the same boat. Like, I finally, I felt like I was like, oh, we're, it feels busy in a way that's really good. I talked to my reps. I talked to producer friends. Everyone's like, oh, my God, we're so slammed. And I'm like, well, uh, if I wasn't delivering this movie, you know, my uh, puzzle game would be much stronger <laughs> or whatever, you know, like. But, yeah, I think that part of it is just the symptom of that we are a tiny bit later in the cycle, but we are also aware of everyone else in a way that's exciting and frustrating at the same time, basically. Yeah. So I just wanted to, wanted to mention it, especially for some newer filmmakers that are coming in and are like wondering why everyone's talking about being so busy while they are still figuring out what they should be doing. It's, it's totally normal, I think, at every part of your career, especially if you have some big things coming up that end up, you know, going away, which is uh, probably one of the most common things in this business is like not knowing when a project will go or not go. So, um, so yeah, just... That's a thing that happens. And I, I have say, s- similarly, I, I'm up for a, a job that would be long term, you know, like a couple months, but not quote unquote sexy or, or there would be fewer th- things that I would put in my reel as a result of this job. Right. But like, oh, the idea of a little bit of stability and like being booked out for a long time sounds nice and fun. You know what I mean? But I have that FOMO kind of kicking in where I'm like, I know as soon as I sign this contract, I'm going to get hit up for jobs that are way cooler and maybe I travel or what, you know, like other stuff that would be really enticing. And so I look, I'll take the job for sure. But, but I I have a a lot of anxiety around that. Do you feel like you, I feel like every once in a while I'll take a longer term job and you're always like, dude, what are you doing? No, I mean, I, you know, I I kind of believe in just saying yes to everything and then (laughs) trying to back out of things that are not as cool. Ooh, bless you. Um, because just everything is so unreliable as to when it actually happens. Like a lot of times I'm like, oh man, I have four jobs all at the same time. How am I going to handle these? And then one goes away. One postpones by a year. One is like, they decide it's going to be a hundred percent post or something. And then there's one job left. (laughs) And so, so yeah, so I'm all for saying yes, as long as you're, you know, being creative and directing and, you know, I think the job I know about your job opportunity, you like if you have a chance to work with new people and new collaborators and new creatives, I think it's always worth doing that because it's just, it's just so much more fun than like, you know, sitting at home and writing a screenplay. <laughs> so, well, on that note, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. It's a place where, you know, we are still making this podcast no matter what happens anywhere else in our career, babies, homes, jobs. If you are interested in uh, just shoot it onesie for your head, aka a hat, you can uh, give it the $10 level at patreon.com slash just shoot a pod or you can just give us a dollar a month. It's helpful. Pays our editors. Pays for our web space. We're actually might be doing a big transition technology wise for our podcast soon that will cost some money. So uh, any, any donations or whatever, any patronage on patreon.com is helpful and appreciated but if not don't worry we still like you great so check out our patreon.com 
Now we'll, we'll jump into our conversation with D.W. Thomas about her film Too Late, available across all streaming media, all that stuff, VOD, on June 25th. Let's talk to D.W. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So you made this awesome horror comedy, and we wanted to talk to you about your cast. And just starting at the end first, I'm curious, when you have your opening credits and you have, you know, your lead actors and kind of some featured cameos and things how much negotiating is there in terms of like of like the you know with celebrity a and celebrity b like how like how all the credit ordering goes sure, is that sure. something that's complicated it well actually wasn't that complicated because our main like big talent was, was just mary lynn rice kevin fred armison and so they didn't really fight over it but i i think that can happen it was pretty much that they asked for, Fred asked for an and, and then we offered Mary Lena with, and they were like, yeah, sure. I mean, also comedians, I think are totally easier, even though they're both actors, respectively. I think they're totally easier when it comes to all of that. And also, they're so established. So it's like, it's less of a thing to be like, I need my with or like, yeah. you know. But wouldn't it be kind of funny if you did like an introducing Fred Armisen? <laughs> Like something yeah, that like would that. be hilarious. Yeah, I loved that. My favorite thing about Deadpool is how they messed with the opening credits like that, and it's something that I want to do one day. I will say, I, I, having I don't think I've talked about this on the show. So, DW, I I produced a movie that my wife directed right before lockdown, but so it was the first time I'd ever produced anything of this size. And when we were like going out to cast and things like that, I feel like there was something in kind of like our boilerplate offer letter that was like that basically made it so that all of a sudden billing became super stressful in terms of like everyone had to be before whatever the the official cue was or something. And so I ended up like 
freaking out and being like, oh my God, are we going to have to have an intro sequence that's like five minutes long of names? <laughs> like, like basically everybody was at the top of the of the movie and it was so stressful. Oh, so right. I'm like really before the, before, in the opening credits. Exactly. In the opening credits uh, sequence, basically. You know what actually I think made it a lot easier is we lucked out and we had a lawyer, uh, Lonnie Ramadi, who kind of really helped helped me in the beginning of, of coming up with how to actually produce a movie. And he's kind of an intimidating guy. And so he just said no to everything. And so it made it a lot easier on us. We were like, oh, we'll just let them deal with it. And then, you know, some of their agents were a little bit fussy, like, your lawyer is a little bit mean. We're like, oh, I'm so sorry your feelings are hurt, <laughs> but it's not personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that, that, talk about a teachable moment, though. Like having, a heavy someone who knows what they're talking about and is isn't really interested in putting up with agents shit yeah that makes a ton of sense that's great well so speaking of having lawyers and putting together like your cast and all that stuff can we rewind a little bit and can you tell us a what too late is about and b how you came to direct it sure uh too late is it follows a a lonely assistant who finally finds love and must escape her monster of a boss before she and her new love become his next meal which is the the log line but it's it's pretty much about a a woman who's in the comedy world who is trying to make her way and figure out how how to be a comedian and how to make a name for herself and she sort of gets wrapped up with this this man who turns out to be uh, a little bit more than she bargained for. And so she becomes kind of his assistant and has to procure comedians for him because he is a monster, literally and figuratively. So we came up with the idea initially, me and my husband, my husband was in the comedy scene for a long time and he was good friends with Ron Lynch. And so we kind of wrote it around Ron because we- Wait, is your husband Tom Becker? Yeah. The writer, I only know because you know on IMDb he's the writer. He's also listed as six foot five inches tall, which is, is quite tall, tall for a writer. <laughs> Are writers usually short? I didn't yeah. know this. Yeah, I mean, I think on average. Yeah. Well, he's quite tall for anybody. <laughs> so yeah, he he was good friends with Ron, and he and Ron Lynch is one of the he plays the monster. He plays the monster and he has a variety show and Ron Lynch actually has a variety show. And we sort of started playing with that idea that a monster could really go sort of uh, could get away in in the world of comedy because people do really come and go. I mean, you'll see a comedian one night and then not see him for another three years. And you're like, oh, hey, we're, you know, you won't even be like any time past. Sure. Yeah. So well, they're just like, oh, yeah, I was touring. You know, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or I was broke and I went back home and lived with my parents for a little while. And mm-hmm. yeah, which is most. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> sure. uh, so, so we sort of went went at it that way, and we wanted to make a movie that was cheap that we could actually do and get interesting people. You were talking about our cast, get interesting people involved with because comedians, they are talented and they're really hungry to get into acting because a lot of them aren't as uh they don't get offered acting roles as as much or if it's just it's just for commercials and so to actually get into feature films i think is is an appealing prospect so once ron came on and then i think brooks whelan might have been our next one to come on and 
after that, I think Mary Lynn and then Fred. So so once Fred was on, then everybody else was kind of like, oh, that's exciting. Like it becomes something that's real. People are like, oh, it's a movie. You're like, yeah. it was a movie before. But but yes, okay, I get it. And how did you get Fred Armisen on? So uh, Ron, Ron was old time friends with Fred. They When Fred Armisen first came into town, he was a big fan of Ron's and he just called him up and kind of... Uh, Ron says that he was doing like a bit. He was he was like, "Hey, I, I you know, Fred Armisen, I, I really I really like your show." And so Ron thought he was just like messing around, like he was just this weird guy. And called it called another night. And then I, I'm not telling the story, giving it justice. But long story short, they sort of became friends and have been working together and have known each other for a really long time since then. And so we went to Ron and we said, "Hey, hey Ron." We're starting to get a lot of people interested in the movie, and we're looking for someone who's great who can play this bit part because it's a fun little role. And you're like, uh, we're looking for like a Portlandia type that has like maybe glasses, like <laughs> yeah. dark rim glasses. It could be SNL. Anyone whatever. come to mind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> someone with like a, a kind of a, a clear, easy to write name. Yeah, yeah. Somebody looks really good on a on a poster, you know, any ideas? Yeah. Well, did you and, have like your budget at that point or anything to offer? Or what, what was oh, gosh, our budget. Deal? So our budget started at like half of what it ended up being. And I mean, it's still very, very low budget. So we we didn't go into debt. We didn't lose our house over it. But Congratulations. yeah, we did have we but did you have, have 30 new roommates now. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we did, didn't have to rent out the closet. Uh, yeah, every right. closet to someone. Hey, there you go. But uh, hold on, though, just not uh, not to push too much about the money thing. And I, certainly you don't have to say any numbers. But uh, was this a situation? I, I have two questions. One, you know, where did financing come from? Was that out of pocket? Did you go to other sources, that sort of thing? And then also you mentioned that it ended up being twice what you had initially thought. I'd love to learn a little bit more about what changed and what caused the number to balloon basically sure it it came from friends and family and our line producer i guess didn't really accurately budget it in the first place which in a way it was kind of like i'm glad because i don't think we would have made it if mm-hmm. oh sure they yeah, knew yeah. how much it would have <laughs> cost in the sure yeah. can you share with us some of the unexpected costs or the things that were more expensive than you guys had originally planned for Probably most in post-production. And I hate saying that because I'm an editor and I, I know like everybody's always like, oh, we'll fix it in post, fix it in post. And I I really should have known better, but like nobody ever budgets for post. And, and I think it's because you probably just want to get it in the can and you're like, once it's in the can, then everything will come together. Yeah, we'll figure it out. And um, I mean, me and my husband we're probably the only people that actually didn't get paid. So everybody got paid because we wanted to make a movie that everyone got paid. It wasn't going to be like asking for a lot of favors. And so me and my husband are the only two people that didn't get paid, which made it a lot easier to make for not a lot of money because we, you know, we're producing it. I edited, directed, and he was the assistant editor as well. And so I have all like the uh, production, post-production facility in here, as you can see my editing facility but with like sound design with the composer with the and then the marketing and and all of that other stuff it just adds up yeah i think a lot of people are like well i've i've edited i i can do all the post myself right 
I have Premiere or Avid or whatever, Resolve. I just got it for free off of blackmagic.com's website. And uh, yeah, why, why do I need money? And then, yeah, like music obviously is like the very first thing that comes to mind. And then marketing and distribution and all that stuff is just like what makes or breaks the release of your film, you know? Yeah, yeah. And we got really lucky to sign up with Gravitas. They're, you know, they're a pretty big company, but they don't do a lot of marketing. And so that was the one thing we knew going into it. We're like, okay, it's great that we got actual distribution because the first film that actually gets distribution, you're like, all right, we made our first hurdle, but they don't do marketing. So, so yeah, we're, we're in here sort of figuring out our marketing plan and learning. I've, I've learned so much about producing just in this process of the post-production or of the marketing after the movie's already finished and even sold to distribution. Like I'm just learning so much about what it takes to actually get it out there to people. So people want to see it or, you know, know about it. Well, walk us through that a little bit, actually, because I'm sure there are people at home who are like in a similar situation where maybe they're about to finish that first movie or, or something or about to move into distribution and, you know, I, I think that there, you mentioned Gravitas, but I think there's a lot of distributors out there now that are kind of doing a new model where they're putting a lot of effort behind getting the movie out there. But marketing tends to be one of those things that's a little tricky because it's it kind of ends up falling more on the filmmaker in this sort of new era, basically. Yeah. Walk us through what, a little bit more about those pitfalls and, and the things that you're learning and, and things you wish you knew, maybe. Sure. Um, I think one of the the things that I'm really glad we did was, and and it is kind of a chunk of change, was having a publicist early on. And it helped having a couple names because then a publicist has something to sell. But that that's really the only way you can start getting it out there. And budgeting that, I think it's really important in, in the production and then in the post-production in terms of like are you doing you know any media buys are you doing facebook ads or instagram ads or is that stuff that you're thinking about or yeah walk us through that a little bit too we're definitely doing that um and that's still a gray area i mean studios don't don't even know if it really makes much of a dent i personally think it does especially with smaller stuff because you start getting the dialogue going between people and you find your your niche audience and your fans but social media is definitely a full-time job. And if you're not like really into, I mean, you you know it's social media because you promote your show, I'm sure. What really helped us actually was Alyssa Limparis, our star. She's, she's kind of a social media maven. And she gave us a run through. She gave us like a, a how-to <laughs> breakdown of how to, be on social media. So that really helped. It was like the thumb stoppers. You know, you you want to create content that that is enticing and then you want to interact with your fans and constantly post. And when you post, you tag everybody in your post and things like on uh, Twitter, don't put hashtags because hashtags aren't really used on Twitter since it's it's like a medium mainly for words. You don't want to waste all of your space with hashtags. Uh, Facebook as well, hashtags don't really work. And Instagram, you know, just make it a thumb stopper. And so it's kind of like that that sort of stuff really helped. I, I, I still don't know how much of a dent it will make with the actual movie. I think what helps the most is is having it like on apple trailers or having having it on sites that look legit and people always 
hold that over anything else. And that comes down to a publicist. Once again, you want to get it reviewed by decent people and you want to kind of just get it out there and, you know, that that sells the movie word of mouth and then word of mouth can sort of take it, take it from there. But even like big movies like Freaky, we've been using Freaky as one of our examples. They only have like, I don't know, 3000 followers or something ridiculous like that. And you're like, wow, a big movie like that doesn't even have that big of a imprint on social media. So does it really do that much, but it must do enough for it to be worthwhile. (laughs) Yeah. And I do wonder if followers is like the best measure of influence because I don't know. I personally have never followed a movie, but I might see a lot of ads from that movie. I might think like, oh, it's Friday night. I want to stream something. Like, oh, I saw this thing that had so-and-so in it, and it seemed kind of interesting. Like, the social media marketing worked on me. I just never became a follower because I just don't follow movies, Mm -hmm. you know? Or or maybe you follow one of the stars of the film, for instance. Like, I think think there has been a shift uh, towards people being more interested in the personalities behind the things that they love and that you're you're more likely to follow creators or people in front of the camera than you are to follow the property itself you know the days of like liking a page on facebook of a of the movie that you like just to show your personality or something i think are pretty pretty long gone right yeah, yeah, actually, that's I'm, a really good point. I don't think I've ever liked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless I mean, it's my your friends, friends are, unless it's how your many friends, real estate you know? agents are you friends with on Facebook from high school that are like, Gabe invited you to like the Gabe does real estate page. And you're like, <laughs> fuck you, Gabe. Yeah, come on, Gabe. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I guess on the marketing, on the marketability topic, I'm curious. So you said your husband was friends with this actor that you knew, Ron, that you wanted to have in your movie. You guys seem to know the comedy scene very well. There's like this, I think, real authentic air to the movie about what a show, a comedy show is, booking shows, the dynamics and politics of comedians trying to get on bigger and better shows to be, you know, recognized and turning those shows hopefully into TV shows at some point. At what point did you decide you want to make like this monster movie? Because Matt and I were talking before we talked to you about this genre, which is, you know, it, it's kind of like, a, I'm sure this, I'm using the words incorrectly, but like this cult classic genre, you know, it's like kind of a lower budget, it's, but it's like um, a midnight movie in yeah, a good way, you know, it's yeah. super niche in one way and super kind of universal in another way, right? It's a monster movie. So was that always the plan or how did you guys like decide to smash those two genres like the stand-up comedy movie with the monster movie well i i am a huge fan i mean growing up like i'm an 80s kid and then growing up in the 90s like i'm a huge fan of gremlins and the creature features that are are more like fun and adventure and i think i we we it's hard to make a movie purely about stand-up comedy because it is kind of inside baseball and it's not like if you want it to be really funny it's not actually that funny because yeah comedians so can, can be pretty dark you know? I, so, I think i might be the only person in the world who likes the movie funny people right i <laughs> know oh, i like it but it's a little long 
It's a, it's a yeah. little, but but you know like you know some heavy hitters have tried to do the world of stand up comedy. I mean, I guess Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is probably the most successful recent. Yeah, yeah and, and it's and I think because that's like a a dated sort of in the right, like a period when piece. it's like yeah, a period piece that it makes it really entertaining. So you're like, oh, that's what it could have been like. But for for modern day comedy, it it is just kind of painful. And I think, and we and we really wanted authentic comedy too. I, a lot of a lot of movies about comedy, they write all the jokes, and I, I really don't think you can do it because stand-up comedians they workshop these bits, you know, for ten thousand hour type of deal, and and you just can't write that. Like you, they 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 know how their joke falls, they know how their audience is gonna react, and so that was just really important to us was getting actual stand-up comedians and we were so lucky to find tom tom had a lot of friends from that world and so we were lucky to find these really great comedians that were willing to burn a couple jokes mm-hmm. I, right. yeah, I was that, gonna ask that's a really interesting topic what do you mean by burn a couple jokes well i that once once it's kind of like in a movie then they're, they're not going to want to use the same joke like at sound stand-up so that that's the idea of burning a joke uh So, you know, like you were saying, like people workshop those jokes for a long time. So it's not like, oh, someone just improvised something funny off the top of their head. Right. Like it is, you know, comics build, you know, bits and jokes and like, you know, their sets are pretty rigid in a sense. Right. Like it's like, oh, you have to have a tight five, quote unquote. Right. right. Which means five five minutes of jokes. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think back in the day it was a little... Like you couldn't do a joke on like a late night show and then repeat it or whatever. But like, I wonder, is there any flexibility now that like because of Twitter and because of so many sets being on social media or on YouTube or whatever, are are they less precious about that now? Or is it still kind of like you gave me this thing and we're going to keep it forever and you can't use it anymore? Oh, I, I'm sure they can use it. I think... I think because of Twitter and social media, it's already changed the world of comedy so much that comedy has become more like kind of quippy where it has to be this short, like 140 characters. Yeah. And so, I mean, a lot of the comedy we have in the movie is alternative comedy and it's a lot of like observational comedy that really comes from these, these uh, stand-up comedians and their everyday lives. And so I think, I think they could probably, keep using it i'm not really sure i mean i think you also people get sick of stuff that happened yesterday like it seems like everything has to be new 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 and so i i think a lot of our comedians that did it they didn't have a problem burning a couple jokes they they all they've all been doing it for so long that they had uh you know a list of jokes to choose from that they didn't mind burning right and the screenwriting phase what does that look like on the page, right? Like, is it like, you know, do you say like placeholder, you know, so-and-so's joke will be here or like, do you write something to temp in? How does it look on the page? Yeah, it was pretty much stand-up comedy happens. Okay, <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah, no, when we first wrote the script, people were like, I I don't get it, you know, because if it's not on the page, they're like, I can't imagine what this sure. means. They're like, don't worry, this comic is great. The <laughs> yeah. joke will be awesome. Don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> right. But also they do... F- fit into the plot right like you'll have a comedian that we don't know if they're going to be good or not and we see she's laughing she's into this comedian right the the main character so that means his joke must be really funny 
And you have, as the filmmaker, the responsibility to make sure that that joke really lands so the audience can track things. This is a bad example, but I made this movie about wrestling, this wrestler, and nobody knows how wrestling works other than wrestlers. And you literally have to tell the audience, like, look, the the crowd is cheering or they're happy or their eyebrows are lifted. That means that move he just did is good, you know? And I think with the same with comedy, you have to lead the audience a little bit to be like this joke is funny look at her reacting to this joke versus how she reacted to this other comedian who's not funny yeah there's also that one last thing about writing jokes which is a thing and we've never really talked about on the podcast before but it is an interesting thing because i i did a little show about um stand-up like a pilot presentation about these stand-up comedians once and you're right the jokes that we wrote for them just never quite worked and it's not just whether the joke is funny or not, and that it takes so many hours to write something funny, but certain people, like the way Jay Leno tells a joke versus Kevin Hart, like Kevin Hart saying a Jay Leno joke would probably not be funny and vice versa. Like the joke has so much to do with the personality of the joke teller. Um, and I don't know if you guys have seen Hacks, the HBO show, but they that's part of, part of the heart of that show is about this comedy writer trying to figure out how to write jokes that this older comedian can pull off you know that makes sense for her and how much they need to know each other before they can write anything funny together oh yeah yeah it's true i mean comedians they they become known for who they are what their personality is you have the you know the pessimistic or the the overly crass or you know they definitely that's the building their brand cool well so you've been in the film industry for a while right you've been an editor for uh, oh yeah, a couple decades, I believe your bio said, and you've been editing features, right, uh, a lot lately. Yeah, yeah. So actually, when I first started, I uh, I went to film school in Australia because it was really cheap at the time, and the exchange rate was really terrific. Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard <laughs> that right. before. That's They're cool. Like, that's good yeah, call. Sorry, you do have to use these kangaroos in every shot in order to get the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> national subsidy, but they're really friendly. Just don't punch yeah. them. Yeah. But yeah, I went, um, I think it was like, I was trying to remember how much it actually cost. It was like $8,000 a year or something oh, like that. Oh man, awesome. And it, yeah. it was so cool. And it was a technical vocational school. So it was a two year intensive and it was a small school. So like you, you could specialize, but then you could also try other things and you really got to know your classmates and it, it, and it was in Australia, which is just an amazing place. It was in Sydney. So and it was an international group. So there were a lot of different types of people in in the film school. So then when I went back to uh, America, my my family's in New Mexico and Santa Fe, I went back to Santa Fe and I was like, what the hell am I going to do now? I I just made all my connections in Australia. And now I'm like, like, uh, Mr. Baz Lerman, do you need an assistant? Yeah, exactly. Um, And so I was like working at, at Banana Republic, I think. And there was a... Uh, a literary conference that came in through town. Do you remember those? I I, I actually don't know if they still do them, like a screenwriting literary conference. I'm oh. sure they do. I haven't L- heard of them for a while. Are they like, the, and there'll be like a handful of speakers and that sort of thing? It's almost Where like a... Where you can like go and pitch your screenplay. Like a pitch so I, think they, or... I think they are still around. Yeah, yeah they are. Or a pitch so, festival. Yeah. yeah, it's like a pitch festival. And so uh, all of these like suits walked in and I was like, these guys look like they're from California. <laughs> You know, Santa Fe is like cowboy boots and turquoise. And and so I asked him, like, oh, what are you guys doing? And so they told me, oh, it was like this agent who was like, oh, I, I'm taking pitches at this literary 
conference festival thing. I was like, oh, it's film related. I should know about this. And so like through a roundabout way, I got my way into running the door. I think a friend of mine's mom was like running the whole thing. And so she put me in charge of the door taking tickets. So I ran into this same agent and I was like, hey, I'm <laughs> working here now. And he was like, what the hell? So uh, I, I became friends with him. And then he introduced me to Jim Manos, who I don't know if you know him. He he wrote The Sopranos and he has done a lot of stuff in, in uh, that area. And he introduced me to Alan Holzman, who is a director, editor. Um, he used to do a lot of Corman stuff. And so I ended up through that working with Alan Holzman as his assistant, as an editor's assistant. And so he kind of gave me the rundown of like low budget filmmaking and the whole, uh, you know, Roger Corman's film school. Sure. Yeah. In a boy. Way. And then through him, I met Carl Colpert, who uh, runs Cineville and Cineville does indie films. They did like Swimming with Sharks, Mi Vida Loca. And so they were looking for a, an assistant editor to edit this documentary on basketball. And so I was like, sure, I'll, why not? So I started working for them and uh, they didn't have a, an editor. So I ended up just sort of being the editor and they threw me another movie and, and they were paying me like 700 bucks a week. And as like a person who just came out to LA and was like, oh, I want to work in film, 700 bucks a week. You were like, wow, I am rich. Like, yeah, that's yeah. amazing. And now <laughs> I look like, back and I was like, oh Chipotle my Chipotle every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I look back on it and I was like, oh my gosh, I was making nothing. Like yeah, <laughs> they were exploiting me. <laughs> they were exploiting me. <laughs> but I did, I did, get to edit like three feature films so yeah i mean that that is a wild story right like to and i I guess it sounds like it's a little bit of like right place right time and putting yourself out there but yeah it's wild to like just kind of there is something about like moving out here and just like being in the room right like yeah they were just like hey dw you doing anything just cut this movie for us real quick it was totally like that and yeah and it was it was like oh oh we need an assistant oh we don't have an editor and I was like oh I'll do it and I didn't know anything I didn't know what I was doing I mean I I majored as an editor but we were working on uh, I think it was called like Edit Box or something it was it was the most obsolete edit system in Australia you know I didn't know Avid I didn't know like <laughs> yeah yeah what I was doing and I was like yeah sure I'll do it like yeah. why not I'll figure it out it's like just bullshit your way until you learn it so which did can you also- learn a lot like in terms of just like film structure and like making scenes work and i'm sure you know when you work on kind of those indie films a lot of times you have to save scenes and edit and stuff oh right? yeah yeah D- like definitely what, what were the big your big takeaways from those first few movies i think actually my biggest takeaway was working with alan I, he he threw me um, things to edit, and he did a lot of what was it called? It was for AFI. He would interview editors, and he gave me one of the ones to edit, and I ended up cutting out like all of the dead space. And so the interview was so so choppy. I mean, of course, it was over. There was B roll over it, but there was just no breath. And he was like, "Diana, you just have to." take your time and it's okay if he says um and you know you have to let the the people have their own idiosyncrasies and <laughs> just let them breathe so that was my first lesson in in not trying to make everyone sound too polished but when i was editing the movies 
Carl was all about pace and all about like it, the right feel. And I think a lot of it is what Walter Murch, a lot of the Walter Murch says is in the blink, you know, like that's when you know when to cut and it's kind of just all a, a feel. And I think just doing it and doing it and doing it, you learn it. And it's great having having an actual film to practice on because it's hard to do just with random footage. It's nice to actually be telling a story and trying to craft something that's that's real. That's something that is actually going to go out there. And it has more levity to it, if, if I'm making any sense. Yeah, no, I think that makes a ton of sense. I, you know, I think the other thing worth pointing out is that mentorship is a big part of the the system as well, right? Like having somebody who can throw you work that they don't want to do that could feel crappy or that could be an incredible opportunity at the depending on how you look at it. And, and clearly you're a person who like just dove in and like went for it with any opportunity that made sense on the film side. So, you know, I think... Yeah, mentorship. Find find yourself a mentor, people. Yeah, and right? I think it's. I feel really. I feel. I feel for uh, editors coming up today because I think that that's not really around as much as it used to be. Where it's hard. It's a lot harder to go from like assistant editor to editor because assistant editors are like technicians, and once you're good, they're like, oh, we, we don't want to. We don't want to promote you. Like, you could just stay doing what you're doing, which I guess is very similar to the movie once you're a good assistant like never be too good at your job because once you're really good they're never going to let you go and they're never going to promote you yeah you know yeah it's it's funny uh it makes me think of i used to work um at comedy central and we constantly had a a challenge with like there was one entry-level position that we would hire people for and you would look at all the resumes and you'd be like oh this person is super smart and like really driven and their interview was great Let's pick that person. They're awesome. And the problem was is that the job you were hiring them for didn't require all of the tenacity and intelligence. And like, so immediately people started being like, oh, well, this part of the job, you just needed them to do the simplest things over and over and over again. Like you were saying, kind of like a, a technician, right? And immediately you kind of like are, because you're hiring people who have that spark, they outgrow that part of the job so quickly. And you're like, well, dang, I just... I really need you to just fill the gumball machine, you know, like, like that's the job, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So funny. Yeah. Well, so I'm curious what things you saw in an, as an editor before, before you were directing, like what mistakes you would see, what things you were like, you know, when I direct this, like if I was directing this, this is what I would do better. This is, I wouldn't shoot so much random coverage or I would shoot more coverage or insert shots. Like what, what are the, the things that you like kind of the challenges you saw in editing other people's uh, footage that informed your directing style. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And actually that does remind me of one of the first things I was editing. Uh, I would get the rushes or the dailies and the actors weren't really coming across. So I, I actually got to go on set and talk to the director. What do you mean by not coming across? I mean, it was a horror film and so the acting wasn't that good to start with, but there was like no connection between the actors. There was no, chemistry and so I remember I did get to go to set and kind of talk to the actors and the director let me sort of talk to them and and help them through what what was needed I guess from the editing side um Mm, that's an interesting 
dynamic I've never heard of. Where you're like, yeah. yeah, my editor says these scenes don't cut. Can you, like, she's going to come and tell you what, uh, how to say your lines. Yeah, no, it was, yeah. And I, I maybe, like, maybe now it would never happen. Uh, I guess that's why low-budget filmmaking is fun because... It is very collaborative and people aren't that like protective or maybe it was just the people I was working with. They were very uh, open to ideas and we were all kind of learning as we were going. And I could see telling them exactly like exactly how to perform is one thing. But I could see if you're like editing an action scene and you're like you can tell that they're like pulling their punches, that there's not enough momentum or inertia and they're not following through on these things like that that type of note could come from an editor yeah of like hey like like give it your all like do it for real like don't worry about how dumb it feels you know or yeah because one of the actors in this this film was not a, a trained actor like she was a model and so i think she had a really hard time just kind of letting the camera like being natural and letting the camera yeah, see her like, and... um just one note just like stop looking into the lens <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. The kissy faces are fine, but just don't look at the lens. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Are are there any other things that you kind of learned from that? Like, I guess I'm curious about coverage and like how to cover a scene. Yeah. Is there anything you told yourself when I make my movie, I'm going to do it this way? You know, one thing is actually, okay, going into a, a low budget film, you're like, we don't have a lot of time. And a lot of the movies that I ended up cutting or actually recutting, they had so much coverage. They had like angles, shots from, you know, every everywhere, but none of them worked. None of them told a story. None of them like made a difference at all to the action. It was just all of these different angles. And that was one thing I realized is, oh, hopefully you have a good DP because the sh- the shot is everything and if you can t- have one scene and just tell it in a way that is compelling and the shot actually adds to the film then you don't have to get all the coverage it's good to get coverage because you're going to need to cut and if the acting is not the best or if you need to cut around different technical problems you're going to need to cut but don't shoot it from every angle because that doesn't actually do anything it just gives you a lot of excess film that you have to deal with. That's funny. I love uh, the idea of an editor being like, fewer angles, please. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Like your your point is like, if, if, it, if it's all waste, if it's fluff, then it doesn't matter. You don't want a fluffy movie, right? Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Give me, give me footage or give me coverage, but don't just, just check off boxes. Like it makes sure it actually adds to the story, adds to the drama, you know? But also, if you have a really good cast, I find that, like, too much coverage is just a waste of time. You know, if every take is usable and good, then you're spending all your time, like, choosing between, like, well, should we do this medium shot where it's a great performance or this close-up where it's a great performance or, or like, one of these seven close-ups that are all pretty good? Like, I don't know if you guys have seen the, like, behind the scenes of Meet the Fuckers, but there's this, like, montage of uh, Robert De Niro, like, holding up these different props and doing, like it's basically different versions of the same joke and his performance is like identical in like 15 different takes and you're like what what a way and it's and it's a good performance too you know so you're like you know i I don't know sometimes when i edit stuff that has like i think decent performances in it i'm like 
spending so much time figuring out like, well, this vowel sounded a little better in this take and this yeah, look. Yeah. And, and you're like, what a waste of time. Like, you know, I wish I could Because then it's like, like too much to choose from. And you're, yeah. yeah, and you just burn out on it. Totally. And also you wear your actors out. Like, what's yeah. the point of that? And then towards the end of the night, you're, you're like, oh, the why important is... stuff. Yeah. yeah. So on Too Late, what was your approach to how you cover a scene? Like you have you have the script, you have a location. Well, how, we how we we shot it? it we shot it in fifteen days, so it was like incredibly short, and we we definitely didn't have a lot of time. So we we tried to do the basic coverage. We had the wide, medium, and close up where we could. Some of the locations were so small that we could only do like certain angles. So it was I. I wish I wish we could have had more time to play with a lot of the the camera angles. I definitely got some good ones in there, but it it was um kind of a run gun situation. And I I don't know if this is a good thing that I did, but I know when I was when I was shooting it, I would go, oh, "Okay, I would be cutting it in my head." And then I would be like, "Okay, I I have it. We can move on." But but saying that and then going, "Oh, well, what what really helps as an editor is is being able to play with different stuff as well so you don't want to cut it too much while you're shooting it and yeah yeah i think that was the biggest thing i i definitely grappled with was getting out of the editor mind frame and being in the director mind frame and letting the actors go over or or improv a little bit and and kind of letting them have more freedom instead of just cutting it in my head but like I said, the time we had a very short amount of time, so it was like two or three takes per per scene. So right. So given that you had to shoot the whole movie in fifteen days and you were rushing, and I'm sure there was actor schedules and all sorts of issues you were dealing with, there is a good amount of prosthetics in the movie. Like, was there ever a time when you're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this because this is going to eat up like six hours of our day? Or how did you balance the like special effects monster visuals with you know your budget and schedule and everything? Oh yeah, that was very well planned because uh, also with Bob's suit, he he has three different versions of Bob, and once Bob uh, towards the end of the movie, we couldn't go back to the early Bob because we only had one suit, so we used that same suit and we degraded it for the end of the Bob or the the final Bob. So so we really did have to carefully plan, and also we were shooting out of order. We lucked out with our location. We found this great place in downtown LA that was uh, the Hungarian Cultural Center. And they had like four or five rooms that we could use. And so we ended up doing like half of our locations in this one location. So while Bob was getting his outfit set up, we could shoot Jimmy and Violet in their restaurant scene over in a different part of the um, studio place. So so that it it actually never really came up that we were like running out of time for for Bob or that Bob's prosthetics were going to take too long. So yeah, I think yeah, scheduling prosthetics is probably the most important thing if you're going to if you're going to do it. And of course, if we had more money, that would make that a little bit easier, but yeah. Yeah, but I, I wonder. That's interesting, though. Like the ability to just kind of hop in between sets. I bet it's easy to underestimate that in the planning phase of just like, you know, having that versatility so that you can time things out. And like, if prosthetics are taking longer or if they're going to be done sooner, it's not as big of a deal, you know, to kind of jump around a little bit. I, I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, it worked out pretty well. But like like you said as well, I mean, setting up lights and camera always end up taking longer than you think it will. And uh, Mo Mo Meinhardt, who did our prosthetic, she she had a crew and they were just so fast and so proficient. It was actually pretty amazing that they were always kind of waiting for us. Yeah, <laughs> which was like. Yeah, they could build a whole monster and we were still setting up lights for a stand-up comedy show, yeah. you know, in a right. cheap coffee shop. Was but, this your first time working with a cinematographer? Uh, I guess so, actually, yeah. All the shorts I did, I ended up shooting it myself because I have a background in photography and so I, I know enough about it, but this was the first time I worked with someone who had his own camera. Anything, uh, any learnings there actually? Like, you know, it, you've spent so much time making movies with a lot of different other decision makers, right? A lot of the department heads and things, but like the cinematographer is probably one of the few people you don't spend a ton of time with when you're making, when you're editing someone else's movie. So how was that relationship? Oh, yeah, it, it was definitely a learning curve because you're right. Like I didn't have that um, experience sort of articulating what I wanted to another creative because I usually have it all in my own head and I'm kind of like I can micromanage it and so passing that control over to someone else was definitely like all right I I, I'm gonna trust you like let's let's hope this all works out and yeah I mean there were definitely like some difficult areas but overall it, it was pretty pretty easy i mean did you guys work together on a shot list or like go in with the plan yeah we did a shot list and we i think we threw a lot of it out just when we got to the set and tried fitting it in and and also the time constraint but we we definitely thought through it i think that's also one thing like i would love to have is have a storyboard i don't even know if they do storyboards anymore because i know it's like prohibitively expensive for feature films to do storyboards but i do see the value in actually seeing seeing how it all comes together like having that blueprint would be really helpful and i'm talking about fancy storyboard not like this you know yeah yeah not just thumbnails or whatever yeah Yeah, yeah. like they are getting pretty good but i mean i just remember looking at old storyboards from like Hitchcock and stuff they're just so cool and I mean a lot of the angles come from storyboards and come from that that artistic view of of a uh from an artist so like Bong Joon-ho he boards I think every frame of his movies beforehand and I think you can buy like a book of his boards I think that more uh, or less J- look like the movie, right? James Cameron is a really strong illustrator as well. I'm always jealous of people who can draw exceptionally good-looking boards. You're just like, oh man, well then no one ever is ever going to cut the board artist from your budget. <laughs> yeah, well, it is <laughs> an interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're an editor turned director. We've heard that story a lot, but we have like Drew Pearson. We've had a few storyboard artists turned directors because a lot of them are kind of directing things, especially in the commercial world. Like I. Like sometimes I've met storyboard artists, they'll just literally get the script and then they'll do the boards without even talking to the director about it. Um, And then they'll get notes on it. So it's an interesting way in. Um, Well, just to wrap things up, I guess my last question is if you were to talk to DW before she directed this feature, what what are kind of one or two big pieces of advice you would give yourself or to another person that's, that's embarking on their first feature film? I think go easy on yourself and accept 
imperfection, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I love that. That That's a new one too. Were there things specifically that like you got in your head about, you know, like what, what were you hard on yourself for? Probably with the editing, like I, I get really up. Sometimes I, I sort of, uh, get really obsessed with certain areas and I'll, I'll just get hyper-focused on them and I'll be cutting this one area for like days. And then my husband will come in and be like, are you still like working on that (laughs) shot? Like, (laughs) Diana, you first, you need to eat (laughs) and, and you need to let this go. Like you need to walk away and then get an outside opinion because, um, I, I mean, I'm sure as, as an artist and I'm sure you, you both experience it is you become very, hypercritical of your own work and your stuff and so it's like really hard to step back and you know know that other people aren't probably aren't going to see 90 percent of the stuff that that you see that you think is wrong and they're probably not even going to think it's wrong at all you know yeah uh, it's funny because that that sort of brings me to my last question and that's i guess about the nature of editing a thing that you directed right because obviously like you you're so competent as an editor and like you know it's a way to kind of really finesse the film was there ever a moment where you're like ah, i wish i had a a different pair of eyes on this oh yeah definitely i think i i loved editing it but i i wish i had someone else do the first round do the first cut because then I could really see it for the first time. Because that's like the most important part about editing is having the fresh eyes. And if I think if I had if I had just someone do like a, a rough cut and I was able to come in, it would have been a lot easier of a process. And I wouldn't have been so hard on myself. And it, and you could really step back and and objectively critique it. But when you're working within it, and you're seeing the same stuff over and over and over again, it becomes a little bit um, hard to to objectively see it. I don't know how some directors do it all the time. I, I don't know if I want to do it again. <laughs> I think on a low budget thing to me, and I know this is different, but I always try to do like my own visual effects just because I know if the producer budgeted one day of visual effects and it's something I directed, I will put in seven days of visual effects, you know, until it's exactly what I want, you know. Um, and with editing too, it's like, you're like, okay, we got an editor for three weeks and you're like, well, we need three months. Like, who's going to do that? The director will do it and no one else really. Yeah. I feel like maybe you, you're onto something though with just having someone do that first pass, like someone who doesn't know that rough cut, who's like, doesn't know how hard it was to get a shot that isn't working. And like, it would be really hard for you personally to cut or, or even just see the forest from the trees on it, you know? You reminded me, I, I always get terribly depressed after that first cut. Just like, just, (laughs) you know, normal. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just a thing that like I, I come to expect now and, you know, sometimes it's a little bit better, but like for the most part, it's just like, it's really rough. Right. But so can, I could imagine being in the weeds on things and feeling like you lose perspective because you're the person making that first cut. It would, you know, having those two challenges combined into one i think would be hard for me for sure yeah 
Yeah, I don't really recommend it, but I do recommend it if <laughs> you're making a low budget film and that's the only way you're going to get yeah. your film made. Yeah, because you have a movie as a result of that mentality. Yeah. yeah, and actually that was one of the things I had to remind myself throughout the process was this is your first film. This is not your 10th film. Like stop trying to make this your 10th film. This is just your first and you have to have your one through nine before you have your 10th, if you're lucky enough to make that many. But yeah, well, speaking of that, is there what's next for you? Are you going to direct some more? Go back to editing a little bit? What's the yeah, plan? definitely going to keep directing. Uh, we, we've got a couple of screenplays that we're, we're pitching around sort of in the same genre, the same but different type of thing. And yeah, keep doing that. If I have to edit, I'll probably still edit, but it's that's the weirdest part about all of this happening in a pandemic because it's kind of like everything is sort of up in the air i mean luckily things are starting to get back in into it and we'll we'll see what happens but but yeah i want i want to keep on directing and you you would do another movie that's like the same size as this I don't think I would. I don't think I'm gonna make another movie and not pay myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so probably mm-hmm. not. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, like that something that I I've heard so many times in the indie film world where people, a lot of people, like I personally put a ton of money into my first movie, um, and a lot of people are like, why, like, why you're already putting in so much capital yourself, like from a work point of view, like why are you also putting in the money? Like, get other people to help you. And I always thought that was like kind of like egotistical or something. I don't know. I was like, well, what? I'm going to tell people to just give me money to direct my thing. But yeah, if that's how you make it sustainable, you know? Yeah. Because in the end, it's like this is a career and it's not a hobby, you know, well, hopefully. And and if you want to make it sustainable, you do have to value your own time. If you're value, valuing everybody else's time. <laughs> so Yeah. Awesome. Well, how can people watch Too Late? So too late. It it is uh, having a premiere June twenty fifth, and it'll be in theaters and on demand. We are doing an iTunes pre buy that will start, I believe it's uh, May twenty eighth around there. And if if you want more information and you want to follow it, we do have on Twitter and on Instagram. Too late the movie. You don't have to f- like it. You don't have to follow it, but that's where it is if you want to search for it. Get but some hey, information about it. You still could. They're posting stuff, right? We're so posting stuff. If you want to be reminded of when to buy the movie, that's a good way to do it. Right. And we're posting a lot of fun stuff too. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so, awesome. Um, well, DW, this has been great. Uh, can you hang out and endorse with us real quick? Yeah. Unpaid endorsements. My unpaid endorsement is a a podcast called Make Cool Shit that chronicles the making of previous guest and pal Josh Rubin's first film, uh, Scare Me, which is out on Shudder. And I think actually you can uh, order it on, you know, your various platforms now as well. But it's a a horror comedy and it was super fun. It's like the, the, the podcast is devoted entirely to to the making of that film and so the the um producers are embedded in the production like they're there on set with them they're like pestering people for like interviews and stuff like from the inception i think the podcasting company i think put in a little bit of money for the movie so they really had a lot of access um and josh is uh, quite entertaining and you know, well-spoken and funny and does weird voices and stuff so hey, what's the name of it again it's, it's called make cool shit that's it's awesome. A yeah, about, it's awesome. About that's the actually movie. 
Yes. That reminds me. One of the other things that I wish I knew was, well, we did actually kind of get it, but make sure that you have a photographer on set and they take promotional stills of your actors, which means like actors in costume look, you know, towards camera, right, promotional right. stills. Posing for a poster that you can Photoshop them into places later. Yeah, that is a good one for sure. For sure. Wow. Awesome. I have no idea this podcast exists and now I'm upset that we didn't make this. Um, it's it's super good. It's probably a lot of work. Um, and um, also yeah, it does do the thing, thing of like, they do kind of move pretty quickly. They don't labor over like the minutia the way this show does. Um, so it it's both inspiring and you're just like, ah, oh, dang, I mean, you guys make it sound kind of easy. Even though there's plenty of drama and like hardship and all of that stuff, it still resolves over the course of half an hour, you know, so. Um, DW, what do you got? <laughs> so, well, one of the things I got into heavily during, you know, I, the pandemic has given you a lot of time to like self-improve. And I got into uh, hypnosis, self-hypnosis. And there's this website called hypnosisdownloads.com. And they actually, right now, they have uh, like six free ones that are all around the COVID virus thing, like get over your fear of needles and i don't know if you've ever tried hypnosis no i've not <laughs> it's 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 fun it's actually very relaxing huh is it, it is it like meditation or i guess i don't really know how self self hypnosis works even a little bit it's it's this uh very nice british man who talks to you talks into your ear and goes you know into his hypnosis which it's about like the the level of his voice and then he kind of walks you into a state of hypnosis and by the end of it you're like wow i have no fear of uh heights wow. <laughs> i don't know whatever it is <laughs> that's wild can it make me not lazy <laughs> yes there yeah. are there are like a hundred that you'll you'll start looking through them and be like yeah why i want that sure yeah yeah like okay cool uh, well, awesome. I'm going to double down on an endorsement that I made, uh, which was for this Glide Gear Butterfly Scrim Photography Kit. I just had this shoot today. I endorsed this on the podcast a few weeks ago because it was in this insanely cheap overhead butterfly scrim set. So, you know, when when you're lighting a scene outdoors in the sun, you need to diffuse the light if there's harsh sunlight. So you, you'll either like bounce the sun to fill in the shadows or you'll put some overhead set type of uh, diffusion above your actors or whatever you're filming to make it look nice and pretty. And buying those things is usually like kind of a, a couple thousand dollars, but I found this company Glide Gear, glidegear.net. That's how low budget it is. It's not even .com. Um, and they sell this kit that is so tiny. It's like folds down to like two and a half feet long so you could fit it in your car or anything you can carry it super easily and in that this tiny bag you can have a four by four um like four foot by four foot uh frame or you can make a six by six foot frame or an eight by eight foot frame and it comes with all the silks that fit into each one of the, those things and i had this shoot the last two days and it was like the star of the show if you're shooting outdoors and you can only bring one thing, I would recommend getting this thing. I got it at this crazy deal for like 250 bucks. I'm seeing on their website now it's 350 bucks, but um, but it's just like a game changer for kind of low budget DIY exterior lighting. So it's this Glide Gear BFS 100 Butterfly 
kit and uh, you need two C-stands to use it with um, sandbags also. So I guess it's probably another couple hundred bucks, but it's just like, it's my new favorite toy. I kind of was inspired to buy it by Wandering DP, the another person I've endorsed who um, makes these like amazing analyses of like high-end commercials and how why they look so beautiful. And a lot of times it's just because they have like an eight by eight frame with like some beautiful light coming through it. So you can make your stuff look like a Super Bowl commercial too if you just spend 350 bucks on this thing. And they do not sponsor us by any two, by, by the way. We don't, we don't know them at all. Speaking of Glide Gear, my teleprompter is also Glide Gear. Oh, oh. yes, I do see they do teleprompters. How random, <laughs> yeah. it's teleprompters and grip gear. Oh, dang. I love Glide Gear. They're, it's really cheap. And it usually stays together. And that's all you need sometimes. Yes, it is. It is the like if, a you know, the key grip from a, a Marvel movie saw the, saw this thing that I'm recommending you buy, they would instantly put it in the trash can. I mean, it is really cheap, but I mean, it works to me. The thing about all of this cheap gear, the differentiation is mostly in durability, right? Like all of that gear, it does the same exact thing. An eight by made of tin foil or an eight by made of like wrought iron steel it will still it's still just a frame right but it's like can you load it into a truck and work it you know 16 hours a day for 10 years or not yeah right it's like the shower curtain versus the like 500 hundred dollar fabric that right has like exactly grommets and some elastic sewed into it um I also, I mean, I guess if you do care about the safety of your actors, you maybe would want to get some better, <laughs> some better <laughs> gear because uh, this thing will, with uh, the big gust of wind, knock out a few, a few models slash actors. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, not for, not recommended on SAG shoots. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, okay, cool. Well, uh, if people want to find out more about you, DW. Do you tweet or anything? Are you on I, I do. I have uh, Instagram and I am on Twitter, uh, D-I-W Thomas. Awesome. Well, if you want to find out more about anything we talked about, you can check it out on our website. We'll put it in the show notes at justshootitpod.com. We'd love to hear your feedback on anything. If you're making uh, a horror comedy, tell us about it. Uh, email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on all social media at Just Shoot It Pod. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at O Kaplan. And on Twitter, I'm at Smitey Pileg. You can follow me at Mr. Matt Enlo. This episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our social media maestro is Derek Aiello. Additional producing by Ali Kornfeld. And you're listening to the Artist Jazar provided by the Free Music Archive. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.